The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, <coughs> welcome back. And let us carry on and see what happens next. So we have quite a few questions actually. It's amazing, you are really good at writing questions, which is great means we have a bit of interaction, which is, I think, often the best way to learn is to have a bit of interaction. So that's good. So let's see how what happens. <coughs> Dear Ajahn, I find it quite interesting that in some other religions, life after death is the goal, whereas in Buddhism it is the problem. <laughs> yes, <laughs> kind of true, isn't it? From a Buddhist standpoint, do you think not believing in rebirth is kind of wishful thinking? <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, that's exactly what it is, yeah, and that's exactly a very good point. Not believing in rebirth is actually can be wishful thinking. Yeah. But it depends on the person and it depends a little bit on, um, uh, you know, from a philosophical point of view, that's correct. But from an emotional point of view, uh, it varies a little bit because it depends on our attachment. Uh, yeah, and some people are really attached to life. So from that point of view, you want to believe in rebirth because of your attachment to existence. You want to carry on. Uh, so, so sometimes there's a clash between our emotional demands and the kind of intellectual demand. Intellectual says, yeah, rebirth is bad. Emotionally, we feel rebirth is good. I want to carry on. But then there are people who don't want to be reborn. And that's quite, that's quite not a very uncommon thing at all. And uh, this is where the vibhavatanha um, comes from, the desire to end everything, yeah? to be annihilated or to make an end of everything. Yeah? So their view is actually quite close to the Buddhist idea. Yeah? And the Buddha says as much in the suttas. He says in the suttas that someone who is an annihilationist, someone who wants to end everything, actually they are much closer to these teachings than someone who is an eternalist. Someone who is an eternalist, they don't know what's going on. And as preci precisely as you say, yeah, they are, they are actually asking for dukkha when you're kind of asking for eternalism. And that's, uh, that's what it is. I mean, like we were discussing the other day, the idea of living forever, whatever kind of realm it is, it's, it sounds terrible. If you think about it, at least to me it does, it sounds really, really awful. Even, I mean, living as a human being forever sounds, is obviously really bad, but even if it is a higher kind of realm where you have more pleasure, if it goes on forever, it becomes, uh, it becomes absolutely, uh, absolutely bad instead. So that's kind of the point. It becomes a curse rather than uh, something good. So uh, yeah, so believing in rebirth is uh, is is wishful thinking uh, in a sense. Not believing in rebirth is wishful thinking, uh, and uh, it's kind of uh, some people would like there not to be rebirth, but in fact there is, and that is indeed the problem. Uh, all right, so uh, excellent. Uh, Dear Ajahn, what are some differences in experience between the feelings of Pamoja and Piti? Also, can monks exercise exercise other than walking and building? <laughs> so what are the differences between Pamoja and Piti? Pamoja is like a kind of preliminary gladness. Yeah, you feel glad about 
being alive, you kind of skip down the street and you feel kind of an elated spirit. Uh, you feel good. It's kind of a very, quite a common feeling. Uh, you know, most people would have had these experiences from time to time when they feel a sense of gladness. They just feel good about being alive or, and they feel good about themselves or whatever. Uh, Pity is a much more strong feeling. Yeah. It is when this is kind of felt, kind of becomes so powerful, you feel it physically through the body. And it can be felt in many different ways. Yeah. And the uh, Visuddhimagga has a discussion on different kinds of piti, yeah, yeah, how we can feel it in different ways, uh, in uh, kind of different, um, how it kind of moves in different ways in the body, different areas and all of these kind of things. But it really, it is just an intensification of the joy. Yeah. It becomes more powerful, more en- there's more energy to it. Uh, and it, it can f- often it is a, both a mental and physical feeling here. Yeah. So one is more ordinary. Other one is something you don't usually feel in ordinary life, PT. Yeah, you feel like the, the gladness may be in ordinary life, but PT is, is, takes more peace and stillness than you can have in ordinary life. Uh, it happens usually when you meditate or something like that. Uh, but then it goes much deeper. Yeah, that's just the beginning. Yeah, and it goes much beyond that because then that calms down. It becomes less physical, more mental, and becomes even more powerful as you move on. Uh, um, can monks exercise? Uh, yes, there's nothing against exercise, yeah, to, at least to some extent. Um, so, uh, you know, some monks do all kinds of exercises. I mean, you have to be a little bit careful with exercise because sometimes it can be too much focus on the body and too much focus on the body can lead to defilements of various things. I wouldn't, I would be be a little bit gentle with exercise, but certainly walking and building are great ways of exercising. And the way I like to exercise, I like to make good karma while I exercise. Yeah, that's why building is so great. Uh, If you go for a walk, okay, you're just looking after your own body, you've kind of be in reasonable shape. But if you can combine exercise with making good karma, like building work or doing something like that, then it's wonderful. So at uh, Bodhinana Monastery, we have uh, we do some building work. The monks are involved with work, just like they are at uh, Newbury, and so you get some you get the chance to do things. And I must admit, I really love to build things. It's, it's good fun. It's, I think it's my Lego defilement from a child uh, <laughs> comes out, yeah, putting things up and building things. I don't know, I find it really enjoyable. And you see things coming up and then it, suddenly you have a cutie. Yeah, and then a monk can go and live there. It's wonderful when that happens. Uh, and you kind of, so you, and so we have been involved. I, I was the concrete worker at the Bodhinana Monastery. So we, you build all the form work and, and then you get the concrete truck coming in, you calculate the concrete, and they pour the concrete into the formwork, yeah, take the formwork off, and then you have all the foundations are there. It's, it's kind of magic. Yeah. And then the next monk comes, and he puts up the steel frames, yeah, so he drills into the concrete, yeah, the steel frames go up, and then comes the roof, and then comes the walking path, and suddenly you have a walking path. Yeah. <laughs> it's magical. And you get good exercise, and you make good karma. You feel good about yourself at the same time. Don't waste any time on just walking around. This afternoon I went for a walk and I said, I'm just going to go for a short walk. Yeah. But I don't really know the area that well. So suddenly time was going way too fast and I kind of had to, I didn't run, but I had to walk really, really fast on the way back. Yeah. And that's why I was a little bit late for the uh, interviews this afternoon. Huh? But better, maybe next time we can have some work ready for us instead. We can do some <laughs> physical work. <laughs> Is that a good idea? Maybe the, the committee can, can put up some work so we can do some work at the same time. 
<laughs> so, okay, so there you are. Yeah. Working retreat. Wow. And now you're talking here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, respect to Ajahn. Ajahn Sum made or mentions about sitting under the suffering and obscure directly as non self. Sitting under the sufferings. Yeah. And observe directly as non-self. Okay, sitting under suffering and observe directly as non-self. I find it hard to observe mind states of fear, depression and anxiety, even after diligent practice without dwelling in these states. Many thanks. Um, yeah, I think, I think there are certain different types of suffering here. And there are certain types of suffering that are more easy to see as non-self. Yeah, and it depends how you, how you do that. But things like fear and depression, these are anxiety, these are emotional states. So you, uh, these are, you already kind of have a bias. You're already looking at the world in a kind of biased way when you have these kind of states. You know, anxiety means that you have a fear about the future. Fear and anxiety are very closely related to each other. You're already looking at it through uh, tinted glasses, so to speak. Uh, you're not actually, yeah. So that kind of suffering that you have in the mind, which is added to the, the raw experience in a sense, uh, you have to come out of those first. Uh, yeah, you, it's very hard to see these as non-self. Depression also is a particular way of looking at the world. So you feel really sad about your existence and life and you feel depressed as a consequence. I think what uh, probably what he's talking about is more like physical suffering, yeah? pain in the body, yeah? because the mind can be neutral and you can observe the pain in the body. That kind of suffering you can see as non-self, yeah? because it is a, uh, your mind kind of has that upeka, the just watching on. Uh, but when you have these other mental kind of suffering, the mind can't really look on because the mind is already biased, the mind is already tinted in a certain way. Yeah? So you need to try to come out of those negative states first. Uh, yeah, build up that mind which is more neutral, more balanced. Uh, then you can maybe see suffering in this particular way. Uh, but um, it, I, I think it is far preferable to see suffering as non-self after the fact. Uh, yeah, after the suffering has ended. Uh, do the anapanasati. Uh, do the follow the breath. Uh, yeah, and uh, then make suffering cease completely. All you enjoy is just bliss and happiness. Then when you look back, you see the suffering has disappeared. Then you can really understand it as non-self. That is a much more powerful way if you really want to understand it. It's possible that Ajahn Sumedho means that this is a way of overcoming the problem of non-self, of, of suffering. Yeah, you watch the feeling is non-self, therefore not, no need to get involved with it. And that is true, and that is, can be helpful, because one of the main problems of bodily pain is our involvement with that. The mind gets involved, the mind wants to get rid of it, we want to solve it, oh no, this is bad, or whatever. But the Buddha always talks about the two darts, yeah? the dart of the physical suffering and the dart of mental suffering. Yeah? 
And he says the dart of physical suffering you cannot get rid of. You have to have, have a body, you're going to suffer to some extent. But the dart of mental suffering you can remove. You don't have to make it worse than it actually is. Just being aware of the suffering. And in that sense, the um, idea of non-self can be perhaps be used. So you just have awareness without building on to the suffering that is already there. But that's quite, it can be quite hard to do. It takes a lot of mindfulness to do that. Uh, yeah, you have strong awareness to be able to do these things. And that's why I don't usually recommend people to observe suffering at all, because very few people have sufficient mindfulness to be able to just see these things. Uh, we tend to wallow in things rather than observe them. Uh, and wallowing is no good. You have to observe neutrally. That's really the only way that it kind of works. So... Um, um, you can try these things, but don't be surprised if it doesn't work, because it, uh, it takes strong, a strong mind to be able to do that kind of stuff. <clears throat> Dear Ajahn, everything makes sense. Great, marvelous, <laughs> and all is well after attending a retreat with you. Gee, that's pretty, pretty cool, okay. And Ajahn Nisarunora, let's, let's face it, he has, he's always kind of here with me, which is really nice to have him kind of supporting. Like, so, um, after two months, I am back to square one. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? Even though we see the Trilakana in every thing, situation in life, craving aversion comes back with a vengeance. How to sustain the clarity and insight without getting deluded again? Thank you, and with Metta. <laughs> um, yes? It is, I know what you mean, it's much harder. And this is one of the reasons why people become monks, because you have a bit more of a kind of retreat time all the time. You have the ability to go back to your kuti, hang out with Ajahn Brahm, hang out with the Buddha. Yeah, hang out, maybe that's what you should do, hang out more with the Buddha. That's a good idea. Hang out more with the Buddha. Yeah, uh, listen to sutta talks, read suttas on your own. Lock yourself into your room, away from your family, so that you become a little hermit in your house. <laughs> it's not a bad idea. Sometimes we have too much interaction with people around us, yeah, family members, and it's good to have. We shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't become kind of completely antisocial. But it's good to have more time for yourself. The more interested you are in this kind of practice, the less interested you are in this kind of empty socializing that you find a lot of in the world. The reason people empty socialize is because they feel empty, yeah, because they need to do something to kind of fill up their lives. And this kind of makes their life meaningful. But actually, it is not very, not very meaningful at all. I was just thinking today about the idea of sampapalapa, yeah, the kind of nonsense talk or frivolous talk. Yeah. And I was thinking that, you know, actually as Buddhists, we are hopeless at socializing. Yeah? We can't talk frivolously. We are useless at cocktail parties and that kind of stuff. Uh, can't drink, can't, can't talk nonsense. Okay, what's left? <laughs> so they were kind of, and that's kind of nice, isn't it? Uh, to be kind of, uh, be, a, be the, um, <laughs> so that's kind of cool. But uh, so, yeah, see what you can do. But come back to the Dhamma. Come back to these retreats. Listen to Dhamma talks to inspire you, to remind you of these things. And just focus on the simple things in life. The life, simple things of being kind, being generous, being caring, looking after your mind, making sure you have a mind that is, you know, kind as well, as much as possible. And as you do that, things will, the 
clouds will kind of clear, the delusion will become less, the fog will become less dense, and you will start to sh- see certain shapes. The tilakana, the shape of tilakana, actually the shape of tilakana, that's kind of an oxymoron probably, but anyway, you will see the tilakana more clearly, because the fog of uh, the world will kind of become less dense as you do that. So you just have to keep on going. Yeah. And uh, uh, and as you do that, things will things will gradually change uh, slowly, slowly, slowly. Yeah. So um, yes, uh, but thank you for reminding me of this. Uh, you know, so because it means that you, when you hear this, you think, yeah, monastic life is the right way to go. You know, uh, come pull out of these things, and uh, you're on the right track. Yeah. I don't have much doubt about that, but anyway, this is kind of this adds to the. Adds to the evidence, as they say. What do you think, Ajahn Isarno? What should one do in daily life to sustain one's practice better? Yeah. Come and see Ajahn Isarno more often. Yeah, and, uh, kindness, yeah. Yeah, okay. You agree with me? Yeah, okay. You're on the same page. You're on the same page, yeah. Okay, yeah. So he agrees with me. Thank you for, I'm, I'm lucky that you're agreeing with me. <laughs> hmm. All right, so uh, let's move on to the next one. Dear Ajahn, many thanks. We get subtly influenced by people around us. Uh, Some places and people constantly traumatize us, and we may not be in the position to withdraw from those people and situations. Uh, We practice, and metta is overwhelmed by continuous negativity, and this starts a downward spiral. Uh, how to maintain that sense of well-being and joy when we may not be fortunate enough to come to retreats like this. Uh, much gratitude, Venable. Mm. Yeah, so you have to... The best thing to do with people who traumatize us uh, is to have a, uh, try to have a compassion for them. Yeah? They don't know what they're doing. Uh, Remember, compassion is very powerful. Compassion means that you can disagree with a person. You can know that what they're doing is wrong. Yeah? But your reaction, instead of being traumatized, uh, is to have a sense of understanding what their life is like. Yeah? Everyone wants to be happy. Yeah? Everyone knows, I think, that happiness is to be kind to others. Uh, and yet, they can't stop themselves not being kind to others. Uh, very powerful. Yeah? When you remember that, that this is a person who wants to be kind... Uh, they know that kindness leads to happiness, and yet they can't stop themselves from doing things that lead to suffering. Yeah, it's just the conditioning is so strong. They can't really change their ways. And when you, just that thought leads you feeling a sense of empathy and understanding for that person. So you kind of, you, yeah, and then if maybe there's a small chance to do something or to say something, and you take that small chance when it arises, occasionally it may arise. And then you do something right. Most of the time, you just have compassion from a distance. Yeah, you don't come too close. You don't talk too much with them. You don't interact too much. Because if you interact too much, dukkha comes your way fast. So you, you kind of, yeah, okay, whatever. And you don't worry too much. Sometimes we need to change our circumstances. You need to hang out more with the people of the BSV. Yeah? You need to hang out more with Ajahn Nisarano and whoever else is, is around. And as you do that, you gain that uh, kalyanamitta, which kind of sustains you all the way through. Uh, so um, 
check out your circumstances. Always things we can do. You can always minimize that contact a little bit, uh, yeah, uh, and uh, reduce it a little bit. Uh, at the same time, build up the compassionate understanding. At the same time, come more here. Uh, ask for advice from people who are wiser than you. How do you deal with people who are difficult in your life? Uh, everyone has a little bit of difficulties, yeah. So ask the people of the BSV here. Uh, everyone has some, you know, some answer maybe that is useful. Yeah, this is what I do. Yeah, I. I uh, kind of just ignore them, or I just uh, go home early, or I, I block myself in my room, and you know, and whatever it is that you put earplugs in my ears, I can't hear anything, and shades on my eyes, and I lie down on my bed and I breathe. Uh, that's what I do. What do you do? <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, and and so th there is um, always things you can do. Be creative about it. Uh, don't allow yourself to be trapped in your situation. Uh, there's always little things we can do to improve our life in this way. Uh, but in the end, it comes back to the practice of compassion and metta, doing your very best, in, even in a difficult situation. And sometimes when you are on a retreat, when you are away from that trauma, that is the time you build up these qualities. Because that is the time when you have a bit more distance, you have a bit more perspective. When you are in the middle of it, it can be very hard to build up. Now you can build it up. And then that memory of what you did on the retreat, you bring that memory with you into life into the situation and then you use it at that time to change your perception and thoughts about what is going on here. But it's difficult, yeah, I recognize it's difficult and it's not easy, it's easy to say, much more difficult to do, but it can be done, this is the point. Remember the simile of the Buddha, the beautiful simile of the two-handled saw. Yeah, even if bandits, yeah, bandits are bad people, yeah, bandits are bad people, Bandits come, they have a two-handled saw, they pin you to the ground, and they start sawing you to pieces. Maybe they use a chainsaw these days because it's easier. <laughs> they chainsaw you <laughs> to pieces, yeah? What is your reaction? Are you going to get angry? If you get angry, you're not following the word of the Buddha. You should have metta towards them. <laughs> yeah, this is a very, very high demand, but the point is that it can be done. Otherwise, the Buddha wouldn't say these things. It can be done. And the reason it can be done is because you know that they are the ones who have the problem. They are the ones who are going to suffer in the long, long future for sawing to pieces, inflicting enormous pain on a pure person. So if you can have metta towards other people or compassion towards them while they do that, you know because the, you guys don't know what you're doing. You're sawing someone to pieces who is a really wonderful person. That's me, the wonderful person. <laughs> <laughs> You're crazy. You're creating so much bad karma for you, yourself. You don't do this. Please stop. So continue sawing. I don't, don't listen to you. Don't listen to you. And what happens to you? Well, you have to, you have, it's incredibly painful for a short while. Huh? But if someone saws you to pieces, you're dead before you know it. And when you're dead, no more, no more problems, right? You go on to a nice, beautiful rebirth because you have so much metta anyway. Problem over. Huh? So for you, it's just a short little bearing with that pain. And then things are gone. Huh? And you have that compassion for the person because you know they will have to bear the consequences for a long time. Don't saw me to pieces. Are you crazy? What's wrong with you? Think. Yeah. The Buddha said, be apamada. Yeah. <laughs> so be apamada. But uh, they probably won't listen to you. But, uh, you, you know, you, you try your very best. So this is the thing, is that, um, you know, the Buddha, even the most difficult situation, we should have metta and compassion. So we can do something with these things. Uh, it's hard, but it can be done. Uh, so you have to kind of just change your 
perceptions and change your angle on these things and then you hopefully will get there. Yeah. All right. Dear Ajahn, you mentioned that just awareness of breath coming in and going out of the body is enough in Anapanasati. We don't have to localize it to the nostrils or abdomen or the solar plexus. Could you please elaborate? Yeah, it just means that when you close your eyes and you breathe, you know that the breath is going in and you know it's going out. You know that without a specific place of, of uh, feeling the body. Yeah. You don't have to place it anywhere in the body. Yeah, you know the breath is going in. And even if you're not aware of the body at all, you still know the breath is going in somehow. It is probably related to the body, but you don't have to focus on that relationship with the body. You just know it's going in, you know it's going out. That's sufficient. And the good thing about that is that um, it reduces your attachment to the body. It reduces your experience of the body because we're trying to let go of the body. So you are just aware of some disembodied breath, so to speak. Ultimately, it does relate to the body because that's really the only way you can know it is there. So it does, but you don't have to, but don't make anything out of that. Breathing in, breathing out. And there is an advantage in that, because sometimes if we try to focus too narrowly on the object, on the nostrils or the lips or upper lip or whatever, it can be too tight. In the beginning, as you start to meditate, you want it to be quite loose and relaxed, because your uh, samadhi is still very weak. Yeah? So because it is weak, you want to kind of allow things to be not too focused, not too narrow. And then gradually allow it to grow, and then the focus comes after a while. So, uh, yeah, but it, it doesn't matter. You can also watch the breath anywhere if you prefer to watch it, if that makes more sense to you, to watch it at a particular area. You can do that as well. There's nothing wrong as long as it, you are able to do it with ease, yeah, with the, without putting too much force into it, too much willpower. You can do it that way as well. There isn't any, you know, in the end, there is no kind of one highway here. There's many different uh, ways of, uh, of doing this. And then you watch. And the most important thing is for the breath to then become calmer, uh, yeah, to calm down, uh, for your awareness to expand so you can see more of the breath. You can see more of what is going on and the whole experience calming down. Uh, so that this is what you should look for. Is it heading in the right direction? Huh? Is it becoming more peaceful? Huh? Then it is right. Yeah, that is what you have to really to um, to look for. Huh? Is the joy starting to come up? Huh? Then you're in business. All right. So only two questions. Oh, three questions left. There was a hidden question here. Dear Ajahn. Many thanks for your teachings. You mentioned in the morning about escapism. Did I? Okay. My spouse today said it is very easy to abdicate responsibilities. Run away from spouse and children. It causes dukkha. Become a monk and you don't have to worry about food and shelter. When you grow old, young monks look after you. <laughs> 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 yes, yeah, in theory. <laughs> 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 uh, 
<laughs> you mentioned venerable that sitting with eyes closed is the greatest service to mankind. My spouse says that it is running away from suffering. <laughs> Please comment. Many thanks. Well, this is what we are on the path for. We are on the path to run away from suffering. That's the whole point. Do you really not? Do, don't you want to run away from suffering? What does it mean not to want to run away from it? Does it mean you want more suffering? What does it actually mean? What, what do you want in your life? Doesn't everyone want to reduce suffering? Is anyone who want, really wants more suffering? If, what is the right amount of suffering if you don't want to run away from it? Is it more, less? If you want more suffering, you can do all kinds of things to have more suffering. Of course we should run away from suffering. Yeah, that's the whole point of it. Yeah, that's the whole point of the Buddhist path. And if you don't want that, then there's no point in being part of this. You know, you, are, you, you, can, you must do something else with your life if you don't want to run away from suffering. I don't know what you will do then. You will probably... I, what is a good way of having maximum suffering? Oh, masochism. masochism. <laughs> yeah. So you must try, try something else. Yeah. Get married? Is that what you said? No. <laughs> no, I'm just... <laughs> Break the five precepts. Break the five precepts, yeah. I think, I think in the end it is the only sensible thing because if you look at what we want in life, nobody wants more suffering. I'm sure your spouse is the same. Yeah, I can't imagine that she sounds like, yeah. It kind of sounds like she wants more suffering. It sounds that sounds really weird. If she, you know, if she can avoid breaking that leg, for goodness' sake, avoid it. Don't kind of look for it. And so this is this is really what we all want. This is what drives us in our daily life. This is why we choose certain foods over other foods. This is why we choose to be Buddhist over not being a Buddhist. This is why we choose one partner of another. You don't choose the worst possible partner in life. <laughs> yeah, you choose a good one if you can, if you have the opportunity. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. You choose your mates, as in the monk's life, you choose good mates, like Ajahn Serrano and things. You don't choose the, the scallywag, dodgy monks, yeah. <laughs> Ajahn Brahm, Buddha and Ajahn Brahm as your teacher, these are, these are important things. So I, I think she misunderstand something. Yeah? I think if she looks at her life, she will realize she too wants less problems and suffering. She wants more happiness. But maybe what she means is that you should have insight into suffering. Maybe that's what she means. We shouldn't run away. We should understand it. And by understanding it, that's how you overcome it. That's true. Yeah? But to be able to understand it, you have to overcome it at least partially, first of all. You cannot understand something when you are immersed in it. And that's why you need things like the samadhi and the jhana to withdraw from most of the suffering of the world. The more you withdraw from it, the more you can understand what really is suffering in the world. Yeah, it's kind of obvious. It's like the frog, the tadpole in the water. You do not understand what water is until you get out of the water. Then you can see, oh yeah, that was water. Now I know what wet means. If you're always in water, you have no idea what wet means. It's like non-self. If, I, if people ask you to imagine non-self, you don't know how to imagine it because we are so immersed in the experience of self that we don't know what it feels like to not have that experience. Yeah? It's unim literally unimaginable because we are utterly always had that feeling within us since the beginning of samsara. And unfortunately, samsara has no beginning. So that <laughs> is the problem. So... Um, it is not to abdicate responsibilities. Yeah, sometimes it is the the beautiful thing with um, 
uh, becoming a monk is that you open up a different world. You open up a different window to reality. Uh, you see things in a new way. It adds uh, something to life that very few people can give otherwise. Uh, someone like the Buddha in the world, would you rather be without the Buddha? Uh, if the Buddha wasn't here, all of this wouldn't be here. We would maybe be atheists, we would be driving around in big BMWs because we'd be working so hard. That would be the only meaning we had. We'd be worshipping the BMW God. Or, <laughs> or if not that, maybe you become a Christian or a Muslim because you want to have some kind of spiritual life. Yeah. But what would it be not to have the Buddha? Wouldn't that be terrible? The Buddha was a monk. He abdicated responsibility. The Buddha said to his parents and his wife, he said, okay, I'm going to become a monk. He didn't leave in the middle of the night, by the way. Don't believe that story. That's just a story. He spoke to his parents and said, I'm going to become a monk. What do you say? He said, no, don't become a monk. Just like my all parents say that. Yeah? No, you can't become a monk. Yeah? Imagine the Buddha. He was this, this very bright and brilliant young person. It's the last person you want to become a monk, right? And he decides to become a very difficult for the parents. So in the suttas it says they were crying. They were weeping when he became a monk. Yeah? You can imagine why. Yeah? But then, of course, he said, okay, are you able to look after my wife and child? They said, yes. Okay, in that case I can become a monk. Yeah? The same thing with you. You have responsibilities, but they only go so far. And if you have ability to, for your wife and children or parents or whoever it is that you have responsibility for, if they can be looked after in another way, then you're okay. Then you have fulfilled your responsibilities. If your children die because you become a monk, then it's not so good. Yeah? <laughs> that would be irresponsible. Okay, my children are going to starve to death, but I don't care. I'm going to become a monk anyway. Well, then, then you're taking it too far. That would be really, that would be irresponsible. So this is really where it is at. But remember what you are adding to the world by becoming a monastic. If you become a monastic and you live that life well, you are adding a dimension to existence that very few people have. Yeah, life for people is usually you are enmeshed in all these worldly things. You can't really get your head above water and you are always trying to breathe in that world where there's so many difficult things. We need something more in our lives. We need something with more gives life meaning, gives life purpose, a bigger vision of what is possible in this reality. Otherwise, life is kind of a dry. Yeah, there's nothing there. There's nothing interesting. After a while, you get depressed because life doesn't have any meaning to you. Just enjoying sens sensory pleasures is kind of empty after a while. We need some deeper meaning. And this is what the Buddha's teaching gives you. And it's not make-believe either. It's not just some kind of fairy tale. Yeah, These teachings work. We know that. You can see that in practice. This is the great thing about having the highest idea in Buddhism is an actual human being. Is The Buddha was a human. It's not a god that you don't know anything about. You don't know if this god exists or not. You don't know whether they have the qualities that people say it has. It's just this pie-in-the-sky god. Okay, you believe, if you ask a Christian person, do you, yes, I believe in God. Well, who is this God? Well, yeah, I had some experience and that was God. But what was that experience? I had some joy in things. So why was it a God? Oh, I just think it was a God. Yeah, it's kind of very amorphous. And then people say, oh, yeah, but everyone in the world, it's the largest religion in the world, this Christianity, so it must be true. No, that's why it is false. 
Because what everyone believes in is usually false, right? The majority tend to be wrong. It takes a Buddha, someone special to arise in the world, to believe, to find some truth that is more profound. So majority opinion is a very, very bad way of deciding what is right. It's one of the worst ways. So becoming a monk on and is great. If you do it well, it is wonderful. You're showing the light, you're showing another possibility, a way out of the ordinary life, which doesn't really have much point to it. What a wonderful thing that is. And you are, because your wife and your children and your family, because they are close to you, they are the ones who will be most affected by what you do. Initially, they will say, no, don't become a monk. And probably because they are attached to you in part, which is natural. And, but then after a while, if you live that life well, their eyes will be opened and they will see, wow, it is amazing what my husband is doing or my, our father is doing or our son is doing or whatever. This is what happened to me. This is exactly what happened to me. My parents were horrified that I wanted to become a monk. They didn't know anything about Buddhism. They thought Buddhism was some kind of crazy sect where you get brainwashed and then you kind of die under obscure circumstances after <laughs> taking some kind of cocktail, into, you know, some kind of crazy poison or something like that. No, no, I don't think they believed that, but they, they had some kind of, they didn't really know what it was. And then gradually, 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 they become Buddhist, essentially, yeah. And that's kind of wonderful. I talk to my brother on the phone quite regularly, I have a chat with him, and he, you know, he loves talking to me, because when he talks to me, he hears sensible things. He doesn't hear that from most people around him. So he likes, we have good chats together. So he's like a closet Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> actually fairly open these days uh. so um, yeah so yes you're right it is running away from suffering but that is what we're supposed to do we're supposed to run away from suffering uh. we're not supposed to run into suffering uh, because that is kind of not a very good idea anyway that's what I say so you take take it or uh, don't take it or whatever uh, but um, Okay, so uh, two more questions. Venerable, very grateful for your teachings. I am a doer and an achiever. I have been practicing for 15 to 20 years now and realize that there is nothing to achieve. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, well done. That is, really, that is an achievement, right? <laughs> when you realize there's nothing to achieve, that is the real achievement. So now you finally achieved something here. But find it very hard to be at ease with non-doing. Even with Dhamma, look for a sense of achievement as to whether I utilize my day fruitfully reading Dhamma and meditating or have been wasting time. Please advise. Yeah, I, I mean, use your time well. Yeah, don't, don't waste it. I mean, if you are going to not do anything, then do not doing properly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, really do non-doing, which means close your eyes, meditate, and let things go. Yeah, that is the best way to kind of, if you want to waste time, that is the way to waste time. Because you're not really wasting it at all. You're actually using it well. So don't, wasting time is not really the answer either. So you meditate when you meditate. If you don't meditate, then um, do things which support your practice on the path that leads you in the right direction. Yeah, such as 
listening to Dhamma talks, doing actual charity, living well, doing all the right things. And as you do that, all of these things will kind of come together and support each other. But don't be a compulsive doer. It's a compulsive doing which is problematic. What you have to do because the sense of self demands that you do. I am the doer and I don't feel alive. I don't feel really real unless I act and do. And this is the really problematic kind of doing. So find that middle way. To be able to waste time and feel good about it is actually quite, it's more difficult. But I think you know the, you have to know that being not doing anything at all, just being quiet, is a positive thing. If you are someone like Ajahn Brahm, then you meditate, you go really profound, and afterwards you don't do anything. You just sit around, you're peaceful, don't have to do anything. You walk a bit back and forth in your walking path maybe, and then you sit down and you go into deep meditation again. And then in the process of doing all of this, the insights just come. And that is a non-doing where you don't do because you know that peace is just the right way of being. You be peace as much as you possibly can. So, uh, but, but that is kind of, uh, you know, even Ajahn Brahm does a lot of work because he knows that you have to, you know, part of the joy of being someone who has gone a long way on the path is to share it with others, just like the Buddha wanted to share it with others. So find that balance. It takes a long time to overcome the doing completely. In the meantime, do the right thing uh, and so you don't feel bad about wasting time. And then gradually, gradually, you take this deeper and deeper, the non-doing, uh, until eventually one day you go really, really deep in meditation, etc. All right, so we have come to the last question here. I have heard some monks say that they were... Mahayana practitioners in past lives. Is that possible? Where do these traditions meet? Is the Bodhisattva vow only part of Mahayana tradition? Thank you. Um, is it possible that there were Mahayana practitioners in the past? Yes, of course it is possible. Yeah, just like even in this life we have. A, Aya Upeka at Newbury, she was Mahayana practitioner in this life, and now she is Theravada, not even past life, in the same life. So if it is possible in the same life, it is also possible from one life to the next one. Yeah? You change, you realize that uh, actually maybe this Mahaya, maybe this Bodhisattva thing is not really uh, as useful as I thought it was. Uh, where do these traditions meet? Is the Bodhisattva vow only part of the Mahayana tradition? Well, the Bodhisattva vow, you can have Bodhisattva vow in Theravada as well. It is quite well known that there are a lot of Theravada monastics around the world. Yeah, Many monks in Sri Lanka who have Bodhisattva, taken Bodhisattva vows. So in the commentaries, not in the suttas, but in the Buddhist commentaries, we find a lot about Bodhisattvas. And instead of having six paramis, they have ten paramis. Because, because Theravada is better than Mahayana, we have more paramis. Yeah? That's how it works. We are competing in the number of paramis that we have to fulfill. We have ten. Ha! Mahayana only has six. <laughs> so it's a bit like that sometimes. You, can, you compete a little bit. Yeah? You, can, you can see why that is the, how these things happen. But, uh, and uh, I think uh, Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi, he wrote an essay a long time ago arguing that, uh, well, 
Theravada felt kind of left out. Yeah, we didn't have the Bodhisattva path, so we wanted to compete a bit with the Mahayana. So we made our own Bodhisattva path, yeah, which is a bit different maybe from the Mahayana path. So yes, in Theravada as well, unfortunately, we have Bodhisattva path. It's bad actually. It's not. It's not good to have Bodhisattva path. Because the Buddha didn't teach a bodhisattva path. There is no such thing as a bodhisattva path. You are on a path that doesn't exist. What kind of path is that? Well, it's a non-path. There is this idea of the paramis, which have been invented by someone in Buddhist history. We don't know who. They are based, of course, loosely on Buddhist principles. But the Buddha didn't teach these paramis or paramitas, as they call in Mahayana tradition. Because the Buddha didn't teach them who has the right to teach these things. If they were important, wouldn't the Buddha teach these things? If the Buddha didn't teach them, who, who, has the, who has the right to override the Buddha and say, yeah, the Buddha, he just taught the lower teaching, I teach the higher teachings. Can you see how crazy that is? It's like putting yourself above the Buddha, saying, I will show you a better path. It's very conceited. And so uh, they meet at that point, but they're both wrong. And the idea of practicing a, a bodhisattva path, if the Buddha didn't teach it, then frankly, I think it is wrong to practice these things. So how did the Buddha become the Buddha if there is no bodhisattva path? Well, I mentioned this before. The reason it became a Buddha is because we are all different. We're always, always changing. And sometimes, you know, some people become very pure. They have some deep insights. Even when there is no, no Buddhism around, there are people who practice samadhi and get very deep stillness in samadhi. This happened because of what? Well, because somehow they are religious and their qualities are such that they practice samadhi or whatever. So occasionally there will be a person whose all the factors come together in such a way that they are ready to become a Buddha. That's why they become a Buddha. Not because there is a path to become a Buddha. There isn't any path really, or the path is the eightfold path like everyone else, but they don't know that, so it's more or less random that they happen to travel that uh, eightfold path. And then, but occasionally that, those random events happen, all comes together, and then you get the Buddha. That's really how it works. There is no path to, become, to be becoming a Buddha apart from that randomness. So this is why this is to me it's a bit sad, yeah. And they then they stop and they say, oh yeah, I can't become a stream enter because if I become a stream enter, then I'm no longer on the bodhisattva path. And you are actually blocking yourself from achieving the results the Buddha was talking about, and that's really unfortunate. But this is what happens with these things. Where do these traditions meet? Uh, there's, if it's interesting when you start looking at Mahayana tradition and uh, Theravada, it is often very, very similar. Yeah, the things that we do, the practices that we do are largely the same. Yeah, it's about uh, precepts, it's about kindness, it's about metta, it's about anapanasati. Uh, I remember once many years ago reading a book by the Dalai Lama and I thought, wow, this is, sounds like Theravada. What he's describing is exactly the same thing. Yeah, yeah same, same kind of practices. Uh, so there's a lot, lot and lot in common between the two traditions, much more in common than actually what differentiates it. And one of the main differences is bodhisattva ideal, which is, I think is problematic. I think it's best to leave it out. Of course, sometimes people are bodhisattvas. That's what they want to be. That's what they call themselves anyway. And of course, if you, there's no need to kind of to 
put people down because they do these things. Uh, so if there are good bodhisattvas, okay, you encourage them. Okay, be a good bodhisattva at least, and then they will do well in their own way. Uh, but ideally, this sort of view, I think, is left uh, is not really um, encouraged uh, because it uh, leads to problems uh, if we encourage it. Uh, but it's also very interesting that uh, within the Mahayana tradition, there are monastics, there are people who recognize what early Buddhism really is. A very famous Chinese master I mentioned before, Master Yin Shun. I'm not sure exactly how you pronounce it, but something like that. And he was very clear that the earliest part of Buddhism, even though he was a Mahayana practitioner, he was part of the greater Chinese Buddhist movement. He was, was born in mainland China and went to Taiwan uh, uh, in 1949, whenever they, you know, they they moved to Taiwan, and uh, he says the Agamas, the early suttas, is the word of the Buddha. Yeah, so it's kind of well known. It's kind of obvious if you understand Buddhist history. It's something that cannot really be denied that these early suttas are the word of the Buddha. Even Mahay- even the Mahayana people who are well educated will realize that. It's just that they prefer these other suttas that don't come from the Buddha. And uh, that's really the difference. So uh, lots in common, yeah. Same sutta, same ideas, same practices. Sometimes they say that the Maha- the, the Bodhisattva they are more selfless, yeah. The Hinayana, the self selfish arahants. <laughs> but that's kind of crazy. Selfish arahant. That's impossible. Yeah, it's an oxymoron. You can't be selfish if an arahant. And in fact, in the suttas, it says even to enter a deep state of samadhi, to enter a jhana, you have to be completely selfless. Yeah, you have to be completely generous and give of yourself. Otherwise, you cannot actually enter a jhana state. So, even to become to to on the preliminary stages of the path, you have to perfect that generosity within you when you give completely of yourself. So there's, there's no such thing as selfish arahant. So we are equally generous, yeah, also. Uh, so the, the distinctions become less and less the more you understand how these teachings work. Yeah. All right, so that is it for tonight. So I wish you a very good night, and we'll see you back again tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. Let's just do the Arahang Sammasambuddha before we leave.